Emmanuel Baptist Church. We are very thankful for the partnership in the gospel and the fellowship that we do have and the fact that you're more than likely going to be stealing one of our prized possessions and our dear brother Brett Wagner, but uh, we are grateful for the expansion of gospel ministry and the opportunity to serve you dear folks here. When Eric came to see me in, I think it was August or September, I knew he wanted something and uh, I didn't realize just what he wanted, but I'm very glad that we've been able to work with you and I'm so thankful for your elders and the spirit of your men here as we've met together, we've prayed together, we've talked together, we've discussed together uh, the way forward for the work of the gospel here in Roseville and we are thankful uh, that the process that we've had has borne fruit and we're hopeful that next week uh, you as a congregation will uh, recognize Brett and then move forward on that and then we will even have closer fellowship moving beyond all of that as we look to the Lord for the work of the gospel in this great region that God has put us uh, right in the heart of California, the state capital and its surrounding districts. There's so much to do for the work of the gospel and we need to be binding our arms together and serving the Lord. And to that end, I do apologize. I haven't been here for a while. Uh, not because Eric didn't invite me, but because just ministry responsibilities have kept me very busy. But it is so good to see you. Uh, some of you I haven't seen for a little while. Some of you I've never seen before. Um, why am I giving you a lengthier introduction? Because some of you need to get on to the frequency of my angelic accent. <laughs> and it does take time. Uh, to do that. Um, Americans still say to me, I didn't understand 40% of what you said. <laughs> That's not good when you're a preacher. Um, so I, I want to just take a little bit of time to, to introduce these matters. And it's fallen on me on this Lord's Day morning to come to you to minister the Word of God to you. And so I do ask you to turn to Acts chapter 2. I want to speak to you today about the church. I want to speak to you today about what builds the church. I want to speak to you today about what transforms you as a child of God. And I want to do it from a very familiar portion of Scripture uh, that records for us events at a very important time in redemptive history. That is what God was doing at this time in the history of redemption as our Lord Jesus had gone back to heaven and the Spirit of God had come in power upon the church. There's immense confusion today in the modern church regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. Charismatic chaos is what I call it in many regards and confusion, mysticism uh, abounds. How does God actually change us by his Spirit through his word? And yet if we carefully turn back to an event that some try to replicate, uh, believing that it can happen again and again, uh, I don't believe that that is actually possible. What we see here is actually God establishing his new covenant community out of the old covenant community that has now, is now passing away. Our Lord Jesus has come to fulfill the law and our Lord Jesus has come to establish uh, his covenant community, and in order to do that, he has lived, died, risen, ascended, and sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. And in doing that, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, has come in power uh, upon the old covenant community, and he has transformed them and began to work in such a way that the redemption of God, the salvation of God, will go beyond the boundaries of national Israel and reach people like you and me all the way over on the west coast of America 2,000 years later. And that Holy Spirit is still at work today. But how do we recognize the work of the Holy Spirit? How do we identify that the Spirit of God is working in the lives of sinners? Well, that's what I want to think about this morning from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 44. Because what Luke describes for us here is the work of the Spirit in the hearts of sinners. And he tells us what the work of the Spirit does in the hearts of sinners and how the work of the Spirit changes the lives 
of sinners to particularly pursue key elements. And it's these key elements that I want you to think about this morning as we come to this text. They devoted themselves, Luke says. The old King James says they were steadfastly committed. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Here we have what I call four foundational marks of a healthy spiritual life, or if you want to call it, a healthy church life. And it is these four marks that I want to unpack with you this morning for your encouragement, for your help, for your instruction, for your direction, and particularly if the Lord does lead to bring bread to you uh, to strengthen the work of the gospel here, uh, to understand why these things are important and what these things are that you must be committed to to see the church built in Roseville for the glory of God. I've been in Emmanuel Baptist now for over 18 years, and these elements, if you will, have never changed in all of the 18 years I've been in Emmanuel. I just passed my 30th year mark as a pastor, and these elements have never changed in all of the 30 years as a pastor in my ministry. And they must never change because these are God's elements for our lives. We don't have the right to make up Christianity. It's our job to receive Christ and follow Christ as Christ commands in his word. And so here at this particular juncture in redemptive history, the spirit of the Lord has moved in power as a result of the wonderful sermon of Peter that we're all familiar with and we'll think about in a minute or two. And he has saved many souls. There's 120 people and now there's 3,000. Be careful what you pray for. You pray for revival in Roseville and 3,000 people turn up in your parking lot. You're going to have some serious problems. Good problems, but serious problems nevertheless. For a start, they won't all fit into your building. And yet this is what God was doing moving mightily to begin to build the church. And he does it in such a way as to lead these saints who have been baptized and added, verse 41, to the church. He leads them to be devoted to these four key elements of their lives. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So let's pray and ask God's help as we come to these four elements this morning and consider them together, that we might learn of Christ and that we might be ourselves uh, helped uh, to pursue these things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your saints here. Thank you for the work of the gospel that has gone on here for many years, for the way that you have established this congregation, the way that you have sustained them. And even now in this season of transition, we think of the prospects of the work of the gospel moving forward into a new chapter. We pray, Father, for your people, that they would be of one mind. We pray that they would know your help by your spirit. We pray that they would be encouraged in the work of the gospel and that we pray that you would direct and guide them, especially regarding our brother Brett and his ministry here in your will. We ask now, Lord, as we turn to your word, that it would be instructive for us. It would encourage us this morning. It would stir up our hearts afresh this morning that we might behold something of the wonder of your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we might delight in the knowledge that he is our king, that this is his church and that we desire to honor him in his church on the earth in our generation. And so we ask that you would draw near to us now and speak to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. So first of all, a healthy church or a healthy spiritual life is marked by attendance upon the teaching of the Word of God. Here it's described as the apostles' teaching, and that's not insignificant. It's not insignificant because of who the apostles were and what the apostles were commissioned to do by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the life 
of Jesus Christ, to the miracles of Jesus Christ, to the ministry of Jesus Christ, to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. They were a unique band of brothers, if you will, commissioned by our Savior to take the message to the world that God had come in the person of Jesus Christ and reconciled the world to himself through his life, death, and resurrection, and that whosoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. We get an excellent example of the apostles' doctrine in this chapter, Acts chapter 2, in this remarkable sermon that Peter preached. Now just remember who Peter is. Uh, Peter is one of those foremost apostles. Uh, he was always at the forefront answering the Lord and had something to say. Didn't always get it right. It wasn't very long before this that, our sa that, our, that Peter had denied our Savior and had the shame of all of that on his life. It wasn't very long before this that our Lord had admonished him and told him that he needed to feed his lambs and feed his sheep. And in his repentance and in his recovery, we see here that Peter then stands up after our Lord's ascension and preaches the most amazing sermon. I wish I could preach a sermon like this. Not just the content of it, but the fruit of it. This sermon leads to the conversion of many, many souls. And you work your way through it. And what do you discover is the theme, essentially, of this sermon. What is the theme, essentially, of apostles' doctrine? Well, it is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is all about our Savior. It is all about God coming in the flesh, in the person of Christ, to seek and to save that which is lost, to live. The life that you and I have not lived, a perfectly obedient life. To die a sacrificial death in order to make atonement for sin. To rise from the dead as proof that the Father has accepted the Son's life and death on the cross for sinners. To ascend back to glory. Where he would sit down at the right hand of the Father to rule and to reign and to wait for that time when he will yet come in his glory and wind up human history as we know it. This is apostolic doctrine. This is what the apostles were sent out to tell the world. Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You know back in Matthew 28 that they were commissioned. To go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. And they were to teach the nations all things whatsoever Jesus had commanded. And brothers and sisters, we need to see this. We need to understand this. It concerns me that in America, uh, the church has lost its way with regards to apostolic doctrine. Now it's all about politics. Now it's all about save America. Look, I'm an American citizen. But as you know from my, language, my speech, I'm not an American by birth. And let me just say this to you. I belong to a nation that had an empire once, and it's all gone. And guess what? America's temporary too. But you know what's not temporary? The church. You know what's not temporary? The kingdom of God. You know what's going to outlast your family and your country? The church. So think about it for a minute. I'm sure some of you like to get on the stock market and decide which one you should buy and which one you should sell and which one you should invest in, right? And it's important to be a, a wise investor. But think about investing in something that's going to last forever. You know what that is? The church. The church is going to last forever. It's going to go on into the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because it is the church that is the new humanity. That God is calling through Christ out of the world into a new creation. And we're part of it. And we need to see this. We need to understand this. And our Lord sent out these apostles. Now think of these men. They were ordinary men. Peter was a fisherman. Probably had a fishing business to some extent from what we can tell. Matthew was a tax collector. Probably not the most popular guy. Right? Uh, they, had, they, had a, they had a zealot 
who was probably a, 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 an Israelite terrorist who'd got converted. They were, they were a motley crew, right? A bit like us, right? Diverse bunch. But they'd come to know Jesus. They'd come to have their sins forgiven. They'd come to be reconciled to God. They'd come to understand the purpose of God in the world through his son. And it changed their lives forever. To the point they were willing to go out into the world and die to tell the world about Jesus. And so when you come to the epistles, what do you find? Really what you find in the epistles is just an expansion, an exposition of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Galatians was one of the first epistles. And what does Paul say? He says, I want to tell you about the gospel. I want to warn you not to depart from the gospel. I want you to understand the importance of staying faithful to the gospel. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Plus nothing. And so he writes Galatians. And we love the book of Galatians, don't we? Because it sets before us the great truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. You begin to read Paul's letters as he's going out into the world, as that apostle who's born out of time, as it were, and he's declaring the gospel, and he's the greatest missionary that there ever has been, and he goes around the Mediterranean, and he's planting churches, and he's seeing disciples made, and he's writing letters to them. And what's he writing in those letters? He's writing about Jesus Christ and him crucified, and he's explaining to them the implications of what it means to believe in Jesus. That's what you have in your New Testament. That's what your Bible actually is in the New Testament. The Gospels tell us about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and the epistles explain it to us. That's it. Summary. And then John, he writes his revelation to tell us, and it's all going to end well. Jesus does win at the end of the day. And that's to give us encouragement when you're living in America through COVID. That's to give us encouragement when you're wondering to yourself, why do we have such a messed up country? Well, because of sin. Because of rebellion against God. But Jesus Christ is the answer. Now, I know people can smile at that and they can mock at that. And you might be here this morning and say, oh, that's that typical trite Christian answer. Well, give me a little bit of time. I'll explain to you why Jesus is the answer. I don't have time in this sermon. You'll have to come another time to hear that. But I want you to understand this. That apostolic doctrine, apostolic teaching is all about Jesus Christ. And so whatever way the preaching goes, it must always bring you back to help you understand who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and why you need to trust him for the salvation of your soul and for eternal life. And so here these early believers, these early believers who've been born again of the Spirit, they've been baptized, they've been added to this first ever local church that is the universal church at the same time only time in redemptive history that this actually happens after this they'll be spread out through persecution we see them gathered together and their heart's commitment is what to go and hear the apostles preaching about jesus again and again and again and again my own congregation no i don't preach sensational sermons in fact most of them are pretty forgettable but here's the interesting thing about how God works. Week in and week out, those forgettable sermons change their lives. Because God, through the Spirit and by His Word, little by little, brings transformation. And that's how this works. This is how God works in our hearts and in our lives. It was by their steadfast commitment, their devotion to keep going and hearing the apostles, that they begin to grow. They begin to understand who Jesus is. They begin to understand what Jesus has done. They begin to understand the implications of what it means to have Jesus as Lord in their lives. And what do they do? They set their face toward following Jesus. All things whatsoever he has commanded. That's what it means to be a disciple, you see. A learner of Christ all the days of our lives. That involves regularly repenting of our sins as God convicts us. That involves strengthening our trust in Jesus when life is tough. Recognizing that Christ in us is our hope of glory. 
And my dear brothers and sisters, we must never, never give that up all the way home. One of the things that happens when you're a pastor in a church for a long time is you eventually start to bury your congregation. If you live long enough, you begin to do a lot of funerals. And I've done quite a few funerals at Emmanuel, and I've stood at the pulpit, and there's been the, the remains of one of our church members there. But here's the reality. That's where it's all going. There may come a time when it's you that's in the casket. Just got a phone call this morning. It was at a graduation on Monday, on Friday night, sitting beside a gentleman, one of the fathers of one of our church members, got a phone call this morning. He dropped dead this morning. I only saw him on Sunday, on Friday evening. We do not know the day nor the hour of our time. The reality is, however, that we must be faithfully devoted to the apostles' doctrine all the way home to glory. Because that's what it's designed by God to do, you see. It's designed by God through the ministry of the Word and the Spirit to keep us persevering all the way home. It's coming. Be assured. As I'm getting older and as these things happen, you realize you're in the zone. You're in the zone. You just don't know when your day's coming. My dear brothers and sisters, that's why we must be devoted to this. A healthy spiritual life is to be regularly attending upon the ministry of the word of God, the apostles' doctrine. So you hear at Veritas, if Lord willing, Brett comes, you hear at Veritas, you keep on keeping on in apostles' doctrine. You stay faithful to the gospel. You seek to see the word of God taught and preached no matter what because it is the means that God uses to make you like Jesus. And you must never give it up. That brings us to the second consideration in our text. Not only were there people who were steadfastly devoted to the apostles' doctrine, but what else did we discover? We discovered that they were committed to the fellowship. Now, what is the fellowship here that is referred to? Well, I think it's explained to us a little bit further down in the text. We read it in verse 44. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were all communists. Well, I know that I get to say that in Roseville, you know, Red Roseville. And I know that some of you may be starting to go, oh, no, who is this guy? I've been called a European socialist before, so I just laugh at that. Here's the reality. It's not communism that's going on here. Not at all. It's fellowship. It's the fellowship of the saints. It's the relationships. It's the encouragements. It's the helping one another. It's the serving of one another. I'm preaching through Deuteronomy right now in our own congregation, and I've been amazed to see the commonality between the ethics of the Old Testament law as they're fleshed out in the New Covenant community. And one of the things that I clearly can see is the fact that God in his providence has, has made it clear from his word that one of the things that marks us as a covenant community is this, we care for each other. We care for each other. We are interested in each other. We are serving each other. We are encouraging each other. And that's the idea that's behind this word, the fellowship. It's the idea of partnership, right? Not partnership like a business, but partnership uh, that's bound together by the work of the Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the greatest ethic of the Christian life? What is it that Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room when he washes their feet? He says that they will know that they are, you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. You see, at the very heart, at the very center of true fellowship is the fact that we love each other. And if you've been in the church any length of time, you know that is not easy. As I tell my congregation, I don't even like some of you. <laughs> Never mind love you. But I've got to. I'm called to this. This is the challenge. This is what ministry does, you see. It brings uh, you together to rub shoulders with people who would do it a little bit differently than you would do it or a whole lot differently than you would do it. And you're trying to scratch your head going, why would they do it that way? And I want it done this way. And now we've got to deny ourselves and love each other and work it out, not for our good, but for the glory of God and the, the benefit of the whole church. Brothers and sisters, this is our sanctification. The people who sit on the sidelines at church never grow in grace because they never do anything. The people who are serving in the middle are the ones under the pressure and the struggles. And you see their sin more because they get exasperated with each other, right? 
But the fellowship of the saints, the partnership of the saints through the Spirit of God calls us first and foremost to learn how to love each other, even when we're so different. Even when we all have different gifts, different strengths, different weaknesses. You were to sit in our elders' meeting, we're not all the same. We're different personalities, different temperaments, different perspectives. People are astounded when I say to people, I don't get all I want at Emmanuel Baptist Church, but you know what, that's actually a good thing. There are other elders who will temper what I want to do and I will temper what they will want to do and we'll pray and we'll wrestle and we'll have fellowship together around the word and we'll ask the Lord for wisdom that we might do what is for the glory of God and the good of the whole church. And brothers and sisters, this is what true fellowship is. True fellowship is serving one another, dying to self, learning to love one another. If you're getting everything you want in the church, there's something wrong with your church. If you're learning to deny yourself in the ministry of the church, that's a good thing. You might just be becoming like Jesus. That's everything. And I don't want to encourage you in that, to see that, that you're a, you're a family and that you're together in the work of the gospel. And notice, uh, verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What was the issue? The issue was this. They didn't want any of the saints in the church to have a lack for something. If we know that a brother or a sister is in need and it is within our power to do something about it, we're called to do something about it. That's what love looks like. We're not called to keep our stuff to ourselves. And let's be honest, we're a bunch of middle-class, well-off people. We've got more stuff than we ever need. How many of you have gone into your closets and went, need to clear this out? And you've been doing that for the last 10 years and haven't done it yet. And your closets are even more full now than they were 10 years ago. I put my hand up. My wife and I do that. And I'm like, got to clear this out. She's very good at it. She just opens up black bag. And I'm like, I, don't, I wear that T-shirt. I need those shoes. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, right? We've got more stuff than we will ever need. My father died 10 years ago. Thankfully, he's in glory. But I remember going home and, 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 and sitting with my brother and my mother, and we went into the wardrobes. And uh, if dad had been there, he would have been laughing, and I'd have been teasing him. But, you know, he had 77 shirts. And my mother had ironed every one of them, and they were on coat hangers. That was my father. He was old school, right? My father would wear his suit to church morning and evening, no matter what. Shirt and tie, he was old school. But I joked, he's got 77 shirts. I counted them because I was so astounded. <laughs> but what did we do? My brother and I didn't fit us. Plus, they were not quite as trendy as the shirts we would want to wear. So what did we do? Black bag. Shoes, suits. Right? There's so much stuff. Right? We don't know what to do with it. And yet there may be somebody in the congregation who's got a need. And you could meet that need five times over. Fellowship. Get to know one another. Be in one another's lives. Serve one another. Love one another for the sake of Christ. We are not mere acquaintances as church members. We are brothers and sisters of the family of God. And this is what happens here. As the work of the Spirit comes into the lives of these, uh, these sinners and they become Christians, uh, they begin to get taught the, the gospel of Christ. They begin to gather in fellowship. They are partnering together for the gospel. Love begins to dominate the, the culture, the climate. Now, it's not perfect, as you see. You read through another few chapters. They're going to start dividing. and They're going to have their problems. And Acts 6 is a whole story in itself, right? Why? Because maintaining good, godly fellowship takes real effort. It doesn't just happen by osmosis or by one sermon or by having good men at the helm, everybody's involved. Every church member. Wayne Mack has an excellent book on uh, the household of faith, and he, he asks this question. If every church member was just like me, what kind of church would my church be? I think it's a very good reflective question to ask ourselves, right? You know, you've got the people at the center who are all busy and they're doing 80% of the work, and then you've got, you know, the, the different circles as I look at it, and you've got that, and then you've got the peripherals. My job as a pastor is to get as many people to the center as I possibly can. 
to encourage as many people into the middle where they've got something to do. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to interview people for membership at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, this is one of the questions he would ask. So what is your job going to be? Because there is no unemployment in the church. And whilst I've utterly failed at doing that in my membership interviews, I think it's a good principle. I think it's a good principle. We're all needed. We're all needed. I was talking with Jeff this morning about things like security and ushering and all of those things. We're we're all needed in the church. The Lord has put us all in the church to function together. I I thought about preaching on 1 Corinthians 12 to you this morning, but I can apply it here, right? We're we're all members of the body together, and we all have a role. We have to work out what that role looks like. And that role will ebb and flow, and it will change in the seasons of life that we have. Right? I'm getting to the point now where I love it that the young guys want to preach and teach, and I'm just happy to sit in the congregation. I've been doing this for 30 years, and uh, I still love preaching, but I'm also delighted when the young men want to step up, and I'm going to encourage them. I'll happily let them be in the pulpit. You see, we want to bind together in the fellowship of the saints in partnership by the work of the Spirit in our lives, and that's what's going on here. They were devoted to fellowshipping, being in each other's lives, not just socially, but to serve one another, to help one another, to encourage one another. And my dear brothers and sisters, that's my prayer for you as it is for my own congregation that you know, we would grow in this. We've, we've, we've got a, lo- a long way to go. We haven't arrived. We have a congregation that drives 30, 40 minutes to church. That means you've got to work harder at fellowship. You just have to. If you're going to do that, then you've got to work hard. I'm not saying it's wrong to drive 30 or 40 minutes. What I am saying is it's wrong to drive 30 or 40 minutes and have no fellowship. Fellowship is part of being a Christian, part of being in the church. And so the saints were committed to fellowship as well as the teaching of the apostles. And then it goes on and it says, to the breaking of bread. And we're going to do this this morning as we gather together. I want us to think about this. The early church observed the Lord's Supper. Now, where did they get that from? Where did the apostles get it from? Well, you know where they got it from. The night our Lord was betrayed, right? He taught them, right, that they were to institute the ordinance of the Supper, the Lord's Supper, where they were to come together to proclaim his death until he comes. They were to come together uh, to declare Christ is their Lord and Savior. And we have a whole theology of the Lord's Supper that's fleshed out for us in the New Testament, coming to 1 Corinthians 11, where even the church at Corinth had to be admonished that they thought they were observing the Lord's Supper, but they really weren't. I really believe the modern church needs to take that seriously. The holy reality of communion. It is not like going to McDonald's. It's not a drive through It's not a flippant thing. There are warnings attached in the New Testament to profaning the Lord's Supper. There are blessings to be had, but there are judgments to avoid. And I think in our shallow, flippant evangelicalism of the 21st century, we've lost something of that. Such is the nature of egalitarianism in our culture that it's bled into the church. Well, you can't tell me I can't. Well, actually, I might because maybe it's for your good that I would say you ought not to be at the supper at this point till you sort out a few things, like repent from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized and added to the church. Those are vitally important steps that the New Testament clearly lays out. Now, it's love to tell someone your life is not biblically ordered yet to be welcomed to the supper. Well, you can't not welcome me. It's the Lord's Supper. Yeah, it's the Lord's Supper with the Lord's regulations. And you need to take them seriously. And so the New Testament church, they would have been taught these things, right? The pattern is clearly laid out for us in the book of Acts, but it's clearly explained to us in the epistles that you are to become a Christian before you come to the Lord's Supper. So you might be here this morning, you're not a Christian. I want to say to you, it's great that you're here. I want you to hear about Jesus Christ, but I want you to understand that you do not touch the bread or the wine and take it without believing in Jesus. Not because we're a bunch of weirdos, but because Jesus says if you do that, you could very 
very clearly incur the judgment of God. And we don't want you to incur the judgment of God. We want you to know the salvation of God. And so the salvation of God calls you first to believe in Jesus Christ. To believe that he is God come in the flesh. To believe that he has fulfilled the law that you've broken. To believe that he has died on the cross and shed his blood to make atonement for the sins you've committed. To believe that he has risen from the dead in order to show to the world that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He has ascended back to the Father where he is sitting down now at the right hand of God interceding for all that he has died for and then he's going to come again and judge the nations. And we don't want you to face him as judge. We want you to receive him as Lord at the end of the age. You need to become a Christian before you come to the supper. But let me say something else to you. More than that, you need to be baptized and formally added to the congregation of the church. You see, well, that sounds a bit ceremonial to me. Absolutely. I make no apology for it. It's the ceremonies that Jesus calls us to. The king runs the kingdom. And we are but stewards of the king's kingdom. And what the king says goes, must go. We must be faithful to that. We're looking forward in a few weeks to six baptisms. I love baptisms because I'm a Baptist. And I make no apology for that. But as a Baptist, that means that I'm not going to sprinkle babies. It means that I'm going to immerse in water fully those who are confessing faith in Christ. Yep, I'm an unashamed Baptist. You can judge me for that. I really don't care. We love baptisms at IBC. Why? Because here we have a diverse group of people who've all been brought to faith in Jesus, testifying of his grace, speaking of his love for them in Christ and his calling of them by the, the gospel to believe in him and now they're coming and they're saying we identify with Jesus and we want to identify with you in Jesus and we want to be held accountable amongst this group of Christians for our Christian life we want to be helped on our way to heaven by this group of Christians that's what the church is it's a large accountability group if you want to use that language that I don't really like but the reality is Baptism is the door into the visible church. And I think, again, we've become shallow. We've become neglectful. We've become complacent about this ordinance. I see pictures at times of, of churches baptizing eight- and nine-year-old kids, and I'm thinking, you're doing more harm than you are good here. This is not healthy. This is not good for the children. The children need to be encouraged, yes, in faith, and they can be saved what happens if little Johnny dies before he ever gets baptized? I've had that question. Well, don't worry, he'll be in heaven because you don't get saved by baptism. You get saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This, the thief on the cross never got time to get baptized, did he? It was over. So don't worry about that. They'll go to glory. They'll be saved. It's okay. But baptism is a ceremony that Christ has ordained for his church so that we can identify who we should receive amongst us and who we should not receive amongst us one of the purposes of it and it's the gateway it's the door so you come in through baptism and now you get to sit at the family meal the lord's supper you get baptized once and then you sit at the lord's supper for the rest of your days and what a sweet communion it is to be meeting with christ and meeting with god's people and one of the things that we must remember about the lord's supper is this it's not only got a, a, a vertical element in our relationship with christ it's got a horizontal element are we dealing with our sins with one another as well as before the Lord so that our fellowship is really true? Our, our communion is genuine. We're not sitting at the opposite end of the auditorium because we're not talking to Johnny in the back because we've had a controversy with him for the last three years and there's just no way I'm going to speak to him. No, 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 no. The reason why Jesus has given us the supper, not only for communion with Christ, is so that we have genuine communion with each other. We remind our congregation the Lord's Supper is coming up. If you have any controversies with each other, get them sorted out. Address them so that we might have true, sincere, genuine, loving fellowship as the people of God. You don't want to be the occasion of the grieving of the Spirit in the church. You don't want to be the occasion of division in the church. 1 Corinthians 3 has a lot to say about those who would cause division in the church warns us 
This is a holy body. God is here. The holy God of heaven and earth is amongst us. And he calls us to sincerity of faith. He calls us to sincerity of relationship. And so here's the early church. They're devoted to what? To the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, communion together, so that they would have sustained, healthy Christian relationships all the days of their lives. And then the last and final element we'll look at is the prayers. And this is remarkably basic in many regards, and yet, very important because what does it tell us it tells us that they were a people who in knowing God were dependent upon God because what is prayer but an expression of the fact that we need God now I know the secularist and the progressive will mock us and they will say oh you Christians your Christianity is just a crutch I say no it's more than a crutch it's a wheelchair the reality is, I need Christ to take me all the way to glory because if he doesn't, I ain't going. And we don't have to be insulted by their silly jokes, their mockery. I freely admit, without him, I'm undone. Imagine if God took his hand off your life for a minute. I fear to consider what I would be like. Take his hand off your life for an hour. I fear to think what I might get into. I don't want to go there. And here's the, the early church, and they're gathered, and they're devoted to prayer. Who taught them this? Well, we had an example when Jeff led us in the Lord's Prayer this morning. Our Savior. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, isn't that a novel idea? Isn't it interesting how people think they know how to pray? How do you know how to pray? You have to be taught how to pray. If Jesus' disciples didn't know how to pray, you come to faith in Jesus, you're not going to know how to pray. Now you'll say some things to the Lord, that's true. But you want to learn how to think God's thoughts after God and pray according to the will of God. Well, if you're to pray according to the will of God, you know what that means? You need to know what the will of God is. And you know where the will of God is revealed? In the book of God. So you've got to know your Bible. You've got to know what God's purpose is. And one of the best places you can start is where Jeff led us this morning. It's there in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Luke's Gospel. You look at the petitions, the five or the six, depending on how you break it up, of the Lord's Prayer. And I guarantee you there is nothing that you would pray for that falls outside one of those petitions. Nothing. It's a summary of God-honoring prayer. Just like the Ten Commandments, there's not one sin you'll ever commit that falls outside one of the Ten Commandments. God gave us a summary. You know why he gave us summaries? Because he knows summaries will help us because we forget. Because we leak, right? And one of the best things you can do for your children is help them memorize the Ten Commandments, help them memorize the Lord's Prayer, and then if you want the Gospel, which I really suggest you do as well, the Apostles' Creed. It's not in the Bible, but it's basically expressions of biblical teaching. Those three Great bodies of truth. If you have all three of those down, you'll be a solid Christian. The Apostles' Creed, the Law, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Any Christian education that you're giving to your children must contain those three wonderful elements and flesh them out for the rest of your life and you'll be solid in the teaching of the Word of God. All the early catechisms of the church, all the Reformation catechisms and confessions have these enshrined in them. Why? Because our forefathers knew these are the summaries of the great truths of the faith. And the Lord's Prayer helps us to understand then what we ought to be praying for. One of my favorite passages in Acts is actually Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, you've got a record of the first prayer meeting that we have in our Bibles. In Acts chapter 4, the insight we get into the prayer meeting and the church is quite remarkable to me. And I, I turn here when I'm discouraged. I turn here when I'm afraid. I turn here when I'm, I, I'm, I'm struggling with the, the state of the world at times and wondering what should we be doing as the church. And notice, it's very interesting, in, in Acts 4, 23 and following, that you have the apostles gathering with the church after they've been basically told, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They won't have a prayer meeting. They say, Lord, help us to pray in the name of Jesus. 
It's wonderful, right? They actually go to the Lord and say, hey, we're a bit concerned, Lord, about these authorities and what they're doing. And they're telling us we're going to be quiet, but we know we can't be quiet. Why? Because the gospel is the most important thing in the world. So give us boldness, Lord. And notice how they actually pray. They pray with an awareness of redemptive history. They pray with an awareness of God's character, his sovereignty, his creating power, his purpose uh, with, with David and, uh, and the nations, his purpose in Christ. And in rehearsing all of these truths before the Lord and encouraging their souls, they then ask God to give them boldness to bear witness to the gospel. My dear brothers and sisters, why does Veritas Church exist? First and foremost, to bring glory to God and bear witness to this community that Jesus is Lord. But let's be honest. We need courage. I'm not a naturally courageous individual, right? There's a lot going on right now in our media about whether these police officers should have gone in and killed this guy in Texas and all the rest of it, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of investigation, but... You know, even, even for our police officers, just because you give them a badge and a gun doesn't mean in an actual active shooter situation they may be the courageous men you expect them to be. Courage is not something that we just have, right? Well, when it comes to the gospel, right, when you go into your workplace, someone says to you, what did you do yesterday? I went to church. What did you hear about? The gospel. You know as well as I do, then the mouth can get dry, the hands can get clammy, the belly can start having butterflies. Because you know there's the possibility of the conversation going a bit like this. Oh, you're one of those Christians, yeah. So do you believe I'm going to hell? <laughs> right? Those conversations happen, right? And you go, oh. <laughs> what do I say now? Thomas knows this because he writes me texts all the time about it. <laughs> it's not easy. Right, brothers and sisters? And just because I'm up here preaching the word of God, I don't have natural boldness. I need to pray for the Spirit to give it to me in the right moment, at the right time, to say the right thing, to declare the truth of Christ, knowing that it might cost me something. Now, it might only be a raised eyebrow and not a raised fist, but nevertheless, sometimes I'm even scared to get a raised eyebrow. That's how much of a chicken I am, right? So where am I going to get my strength? Where am I going to get my courage? Only the Lord. Lord, help me. We have the words of eternal life in Jesus Christ. These people are perishing. They will go to hell if they die without Jesus. That's what we believe the gospel teaches. If that's not what you believe the gospel teaches, you don't believe the gospel. And what is good news to save us from what if there's nothing to be saved from? But there's a challenge, isn't there? We need boldness. And I want to encourage you as a church. I'm so thankful for even just being here this morning and our brother leading us in prayer of confession and adoration and, and supplication. One of the things that I discovered about three or four years ago when I had a sabbatical and went around some churches in the region was how we don't pray publicly as God's people. We love to sing. We love the music. Interesting, isn't it? We haven't even mentioned music here this morning. These four elements, there's no mention of music. Now, I don't believe that's because they didn't sing any hymns. It's just not in this particular text. But my point is, the emphasis of the New Testament is on the word and prayer, not the word and music. And the reality is, as churches, we need to be a praying people. Brothers and sisters, you know as well as I do, we need God in this nation or this nation is heading off the cliff if it's not already halfway down the cliff. Let's just be honest. We need God. So how do we, how do we get God? We've got to pray. We've got to lay hold of God. We've got to ask God for courage, ask God for boldness, ask God for blessing upon the ministry of his word, upon our lives, that we would live holy lives, that we would serve the Lord. This church... This church is going to be hit by persecution. It's going to be scattered. You get to Acts 8. It's a mess. But in God's providence, it's not a mess. Because he actually begins to expand the church. Right across the Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Why? Because here's the wonderful blessing for us, brothers and sisters. 
Jesus wins. He will win. We shall win. Even though we may die, we'll still win because we'll be in glory. And we need to depend on God. We need to be trusting God. We need to be crying to God. So I want to encourage you this morning. As you think about these four foundational marks, this is not, a, this is not an exhaustive list. There's a fairly comprehensive list of your life as a church. As you're thinking about calling a new pastor, as you're thinking about a new chapter in the life of Veritas Church, we're praying for you. We're expectant. We're excited for you guys. We're sad for us. But that's just the nature of ministry. I've sent men out to ministry before, and it's always bittersweet. Because I like to keep the good guys around me. But you've got to send the good guys out. right? That's the way you build the church. But I want to encourage you to take to heart these four foundational marks of a healthy life together as the church and stay devoted to them. I have full confidence if you stay devoted to these truths, the Lord will bless the work here as he already has done. And he'll continue to build his church. And he'll continue to make you more like Jesus. And Lord willing, as we stay faithful in Midtown and you stay faithful up here, and who knows, we might even see more churches planted in the years to come, committed to these great truths, God will manifest his grace. God will build his church, and there may be many more yet who do not know Christ brought into the church, brought into the kingdom for the glory of God. And let me tell you, that's the way we'll change the culture. That's the way we'll turn things around in America. Put not your confidence in anyone but the Lord. Be faithful to his word and know this. Our Lord will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bless you that you have given us your word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And when we walk through portions of your word like we have this morning from the book of Acts and we contemplate afresh the way your spirit has worked in the past in the saints, the way your spirit continues to work in the present, it gives us confidence and reassurance that you are our God and that we are your people and that the Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. And we pray, Father, that you would write these truths upon all of our hearts this morning we thank you for the way that you are building your church here at Veritas. We pray uh, for your people to continue to be faithful as they go forward in the weeks and months to come. And then we trust in the years to come that your spirit would move in great power in this town, in this city, in this region. And that as we lock arms together as your people in the work of the gospel, we would yet see more lost and needy souls brought into the kingdom that we would yet see churches established according to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Oh, blessed God, hear our prayer today, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.